Hello and welcome to another week of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Joining me, Gareth Hanna, to look back at Ulster defeat to Leinster are Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how's it going? Not too bad, thank you, Jonathan. And Michael Sadler. Hello, Michael. Oh, hello. Hi, how are you? Having a wee stretch there, getting limbered up for a good podcast. That's what I like. No one pull a muscle. No one pull a muscle. <laughs> so once we reflect on what was the province's first Pro 14 loss of the season, who knows when we'll have any more actual rugby to round up. We'll have a look at the lay of the land then and what is becoming an increasingly uncertain second half to this season. And of course, we've got some of your listener questions to to look through as well. But before we get to any of that, let's begin with some good news, because who knows, it might be the last we hear for some time to come. Um, that was Dan McFarlane's new contract, of course, say uh, that was announced last week and it keeps him at Ulster for another two seasons. So until the summer of 2023. Now, Jonathan, this was uh, particularly well timed off the back of your newsletter last week. Uh, and I think it was last week, wasn't it, in which you had written about the Ulster's um, New Year's resolutions and how the number one priority should be getting Dan McFarland tied down a new contract and it took them all of what to two or three days after you wrote that to sort it out yeah can only assume that they saw the list and just started working sequentially their way through it so yeah. we can expect them to get handy tied up anytime now so obviously it, it was rightly the priority for Ulster as well why so just why has Dan McFarland been such a, a roaring success well it's a combination I suppose of just the continued progress steady progress that has been made since he arrived you know if you measure it in terms of results then you've got you know they made it back into the playoffs they won a playoff game in the quarterfinals then last year they won a, the, the playoff game in the semi-final back into the quarterfinals of Europe the past two years the building of the squad and the imprinting of I suppose the coach's ideas and getting the squad in the shape that he wants is something that normally takes about into this third year. Like it's something that I wrote about last week. You know, Leo Cullen, Gregor Townsend, Pat Lamb, Wayne Pivak all won the league, the Pro 14 or Pro 12, as it was at the time, in their third year. So if you think about basically the best teams that this league has seen really over the past seven years, say, mm-hmm. then it's been coaches in their third years. So equally, that's not to say that the secret to success is having a coach in their third year because we see that it doesn't work out <laughs> for lots of other teams. So it's that idea of allowing somebody to bed in, build a squad in their own image, build a team in their own image, build an ethos in their own image, but also being able to see the clear progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the main thing for us to the fact that basically since McFarlane came in, they have been able to see in terms of progression through competitions that progress year on year. And Michael, there was a lot of progress to be made when Dan came in. He was coming into a province who not too long before had been called a basket case, as we know oh so well by a certain Brian O'Driscoll. And he was also, what was he, the third head coach of that calendar year, I think. So it was a, a team basically in crisis and to take them from where they are then to now, just how has he how has he managed to do that? What has he what has he changed? Well, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. He inherited a car crash. So the bar was set very low. And perhaps in a way that was an advantage because he was able to come in and shape it in a way that he wanted to. And he may have had more leeway to do that because of the the mess, if you like, that he he inherited. He's clearly developed I think it's already been alluded to, squad depth. We clearly now see squad rotation. We don't necessarily have 
if you like, a side that he's got to put out. And I think this point was made by other former players before who noticed it. I think people like Darren Cave, that there was a very, very obvious senior team that had to be put out. And he's changed that. He's also changed their philosophy. He's changed their culture. I think it's kind of looks like he's come in and changed, you know, every aspect of what they have done prior to this, which I think whoever was coming in under the circumstances had to do it. And a very specific type of individual was required to do that. And it would appear that a lot of eyebrows were raised at the time that he left Scotland when he did. He clearly thought this was worth the candle. As I say, the bar was set very low, but you cannot in any way say that he has not achieved now, he hasn't won trophies, we all know that. But look, just leaving that aside, if you look at what he's done to this team, where he's propelled them to at this point, where well, we kind of now are expecting knockout rugby again. Oh, albeit Europe wasn't going to work out this year, but the looks of it, then of course it was a shortened season, so it's difficult to say. I think he is significantly overachieved, if you like, but has an awful lot more to, 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 to reach for and, and hopefully will we'll manage to do that with the squad that he's developing. I think it's been a very impressive two years that he's put in. And you would like, to, you would be optimistic that if he can continue working in this way and continue bringing through players of the calibre that we're seeing now, you know, that they, they can really now challenge Leinster's dominance in the Pro 14 without a, without a shadow of a doubt. And then hopefully maybe also do something of significance um, in Europe when the European season proper is back up and running again certainly plenty to to look forward to hopefully in the the medium to long term if not the very short term michael mentioned it there johnny and that it was would take a very sort of special individual i mean you see that all across sport whenever you have the best coaches there seems to be something about them as a person as well as a coach that just matches them so well to the particular team they're at what is it about Dan as a person that has sort of impressed you or that that just makes him such a perfect fit for what Ulster needed and still needs? Well, Michael touched on it and it's the, uh, it's the attitude and the philosophy, I suppose, that especially when a team is going to be naturally fairly decent anyway because of the intrinsic advantages it has over their domestic competition. Like we talk about 2017-18, like it was the worst thing that's ever happened. Like... They were still better than half the rest of the league. <laughs> but with that, there comes, I suppose, this idea that you have to maximize those advantages. And Ulster weren't doing that. So putting the team in a position through the fight for every inch mentality that's so ingrained now, it's stitched into the shirts. And just making sure, I suppose, that the team are doing the best with what they have because they weren't doing that. They were a team that were less than the sum of their parts in the years prior and are now, not that they're more than the some other parts, I suppose, but that they're now in a position where it feels like they're making the most of the playing talent that they have. And the other main thing for me, I suppose, would be the faith in youth and the recognising when young players are ready for senior team rugby. As something I asked Dan about last week prior to the Leinster game, when you look at somebody like Ethan McElroy, as an example, just as the most recent um, you know, having that faith in somebody that is only in their second year out of school or, you know, Nathan Doku's six months out of school and playing him against Munster and just because that realistically in 2021 is the way that Ulster are going to win trophies because they're never going to have a situation like 2012, 2013, 2014 again, where they have multiple world class imported players mm. and the game in Ireland's changed so that, you know, th- 
succeeding in that way where you have say five foreign players and 10 local players and you're not using barely any of your substitutes and that's how you get into European Cup finals that's never going to happen anymore so you have to build a squad and you have to build a wide squad. And the only way to do that is through, I suppose, working out which of your young players coming in are going to be able to get you there. And that's something that I think Dan's, a concept that Dan's really grasped, grasped very quickly. And you can see the benefits of that now through those young players that are such a core part of the squad. Michael, I suppose you could say that it'll maybe just take three words and those three words being win a trophy. But if Dan's sitting down and thinking of his objectives between now and two and a half years away when this contract ends, what specifically will do you think he will be putting down to say these are the, the specific things that it, I need to change or I need to achieve to get us to where we need to be? The obvious target is to win a Pro 14 title. And that's not beyond the realms of possibility far from it but you're going to have to strengthen certain areas of the squad I think in in, in order to be able to do that as well as you know (laughs) being able to beat Leinster when you really ought to be beating Leinster as well now they've let you know the 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 blindingly obvious one was the European tie which they let go but you could also argue that reasonably well that they also let go the, the previous game there when they went down to Dublin for that vital game so these are the areas he's got to target. He's got to strengthen certain areas, particularly in his front five. And I think, you know, if he's able to do that with the talent that he's bringing through, certainly in the back line, I think he can get the balance right and realistically hope that somehow or other, you know, they, they can achieve this. And even even maybe maybe dream of a European semi-final situation as well. I don't think it's I don't think it's beyond them. Far from it. Um, but I think those are the areas that he's got to be to be looking at. But in order to do that, he has to be able to strengthen his squad. There's no there's no getting around that. So Jonathan, you'd written last week that Dan's already a bit of an outlier in terms of Ulster coaches in the professional era. Well, he will be by the time he reaches the end of this contract in 2023. Can you just sort of outline that for us? And is there any chance of him, or what is the chance of him staying on beyond that? Well, I'd say there's every chance that he stays beyond that, just to answer the second part first, because if he's continuing to do a good job, by all accounts, he really enjoys the job that he has here is enjoying the work that he's doing. And if he's continuing to build in the way that he is, then a huge part of his desire, I would imagine, would be seeing that project through to the end. And seeing that project through to the end, to my mind anyway, is going to be these young players that he's working with now, who are young players with potential, to see that through to the point where they're not to... uh, go down the route that you like to go down, Gareth, but what, when they're playing for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to see those guys become the core of the team rather than good additions to the team. And just on the first point about him, I suppose, being an outlier already, like the turnover in coaches and the change of coaches, you mentioned the last kiss, John O'Gibbs year um, already there, but like no Ulster coach has lasted five years in the pro era. A full five years. So if he sees out this contract, then he would be their longest serving coach of the professional year, which having only been here for two and a half years at present probably says more about the last 20 years of Ulster rugby than it says about (laughs) uh, Dan McFarland so far anyway. 
well, we'll uh, we'll see what we see in the next two and a half years, but um, I, I don't think you'll be able to find uh, many, if any, uh, Ulster people who will be disappointed to know that uh, Dan's sticking around. So one more question on this before we move on to discussing the, the Leinster game. It's from Donal. He says that it's great that Dan's penned for two more years there. Even Donal's happy. Is there equity, he asks, across the four provinces? Coaching tickets, lots of big names at Munster in particular, and Leinster will finances restrict Ulster's ability to get more top talent in Dwayne Peel's position, of course he's leaving at the end of the season, or will the likes of Stuart Lancaster, Larkham or Roundtree no longer be affordable for Irish provinces? Yeah, well, like the, I suppose the important point to make is the difference in the landscape whenever those coaching tickets were assembled to whenever this coaching ticket will be assembled. Obviously with the change in finances, so there isn't going to be the same money that there was a year ago because there's no aspect of rugby where there's going to be the same money. Like, I don't think it's what Donald's implying, but it's not like Ulster have been hard done to in this regard. Like, there weren't too many more expensively assembled coaching tickets than whenever Ulster had Les Kiss and Jono Gibbs at the same time. I think, it, like, in general, I think the um, the succession plan for Dwayne Peel is going to be very interesting to watch because, obviously, Dwayne predated Dan's arrival in Ulster so he was already here like so it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of change in direction there just not as an indictment of anything that Dwayne Peel's done but just because of the fact that this will be Dan's own hire yeah and we we have uh, no idea obviously as to who that's going to be at this stage no well, I think what they've said obviously they're and from what everybody's hearing I think they're giving real consideration to internal candidates mm-hmm well, time will tell. We'll keep an eye out for that one between now and uh, the end of the season, whenever that may be. So on then to the last Ulster game that we may see for uh, a few weeks anyway, maybe over a month at this stage. Uh, 24-12 defeat at the hands of Leinster. Ulster now five points clear, but Leinster have two games in the hand. So that effectively means that with Leinster still to come up to Belfast, Ulster have to pick up every point available to them between now and the end of the season or hope that Leinster drop points somewhere along the line other than uh, whenever they, they come to Kingspan Stadium. So, Michael, with Leinster picking up five points at the weekend and Ulster picking up zero, uh, is it very much advantage Leinster at this stage? Yeah, it is. Um, that's the worst-case scenario Ulster could have had from their visit. The RDS lose, but come away with nothing. Um, Leinster also, I think, have to play Scarlets away. Well, we know they play Munster away and Scarlets away. And and, and the, the key point is I don't think this Leinster side is necessarily quite the side that it was. So there there is a possibility there that they, they could chip up and, and greatly assist um, Ulster. But I think you've still got to work on the basis that that was a, it was a golden opportunity for Ulster to, to try and keep control of this situation and they, they, they blew it. Um, as usual, uh, they didn't succeed at the RDS. But on this occasion, it was particularly galling because, you know, they were in control of the game at halftime. They survived their yellow card. And then it all kind of disintegrated, unfortunately, that, in the second half. Is that something that's getting in Ulster's psyche now against Leinster, that they just can't see mm-hmm. this through at this stage? Or is that being a bit unfair? Well, that's... Well, they've lost so many times to them that it's it, it would be hard not to get it seep in somehow. Uh, lost so many times to them down in Dublin, uh, whether it be significant games or whether it be league games. Um, it's bound to have 
some form of impact. And in, unusually as well, they went with as pretty much as strong a team as, as, as they could field. You know, at this time of year, normally they go down and take their almost ritual basting um, at the hands of Leinster in, in the Festive Inter Pros. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is bound to have... It's, yes, they're bound to be psychologically affected. It's the one thing that they can't seem to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing they consistently manage is to, to lose to Leinster in games, uh, particularly games... Of, of, of like this one this one was essentially like a knockout game and, and and they lost it from a position where they were actually in control of it and that's got to be a very uh, a very difficult one to 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 compute for them and absorb from them and uh, I mean Dan McFarland you know was a clearly almost angry angrily disappointed man after mm-hmm. the game because of the way in which they had lost it mm-hmm. so Sorry to answer your question, which seems now like a long time ago. <laughs> uh, basically, I think Ulster have now well, effectively lost control of how this one works out. They can only hope that they could keep winning themselves and that Leinster trip up. It's not inconceivable because I don't think this Leinster team is a side that's firing in all cylinders. Yeah. Um, but that was an absolutely golden opportunity for them to walk away with something from the RDS mm-hmm. and they haven't done it. Yeah. Johnny, at half time, the way Ulster led, obviously at half time, and the way it had played out, the way they had competed, even when they were down to fourteen men with Marcel Cotty off a bit of a yellow card, did you think it was on at that stage? I think it was, they were going to do it. Yeah, well, I thought they were playing really well defensively. Like Jordy Murphy was playing really well. I thought Greg Jones was having a good game, and early, I thought they'd sort of latched on to something that was troubling Leinster. We saw Mike Laurie regather one of his own kicks. We saw Ethan McElroy have some good battles in the air as well, and that was causing Leinster problems. But I suppose the concern at that stage was that they weren't really doing anything in attack. Like, they had very few attacks that they sort of stretched Leinster beyond three, four, five phases. And when they did, the mistake would would come. And then I suppose the, but the big thing in that first half was allowing that try. Um you know, you've got all the aspects of the game, I suppose, that weren't good, were encapsulated in that uh, passage for the try. So you have the indiscipline through the high tackle that allows them in in the first place um, through Katsia. And then you have, like, I, I don't know what you guys saw watching it, but, like, whenever the camera, it's a very narrow camera angle on that try. On that try and whenever Jameson Gibson Park goes to throw that pass, pass I'm thinking it's an Ulster line out because I don't see any way that, He's not tackled in the touch there. Like Gibson Park's brilliant at that pass. Like we've seen Saxon do it a lot, even for Ireland. I know Stockdale scored a few tries off off that pass, but Gibson Park's almost the uh, the best architect of it now, isn't he? Just that uh, flat fired pass, you know, a real so whipped trajectory from a central enough rock straight out to the touchline and allowing somebody to score there. But you know, he should have been. <laughs> Basically, he should have been barreling to touch. There's no other way to look at it. Like, it should have been an Ulster lineup. And those kind of mistakes were then much more prevalent after the turn. But the signs the signs were there, I suppose, in the first half. It wasn't like Ulster, everything was going right for them because, you know, they had had the yellow card period, which they did well the weather. But the indiscipline that led to the yellow cards was there sort of peppered throughout. And the lack of really 
stretching Leinster in defence was there in the first half as well. Okay, so you think the the seeds of what was about to happen then were were already sown? What about the, those ten minutes at the start of the second half, Michael? Was of like from Johnny Sexton's quotes after the game, him and the whole Leinster team were under no illusions as just how important a game this was for their entire season and presumably trailing at half time they, they maybe got a bit of a rocket and they, they certainly came out like they had was that um, when Leinster in full flow like that and coming at you it's obviously it's very difficult for any team in world rugby to stand up to it but disappointing nonetheless for Ulster to concede two tries so quickly well they weren't really in full flow again I'd say Ulster's ill-discipline invited them into that game almost immediately mm-hmm. after the, the restart mm-hmm. and before they knew where they are they'd conceded uh a try and Sexton managed to convert it as well. There's 12 9. Big turning moment, big game turner. Um, but they they presented that opportunity to them. They gifted them that opportunity through their own um sloppiness. Um, which yeah, Johnny's right. I mean, the signs have been there in the first half, and there's no doubt they weren't actually bringing anything to the attack side of the game, but they were in the game. That was the key thing. And and, and they had to start the second half in that vein to try and um, dampen any sort of idea that Leinster might have had that they were going to take control. And they didn't. They failed. They absolutely failed abjectly to do that. And I, even, even a side like Leinster, who aren't playing particularly well or coherently, were able to take advantage of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Leinster did get the rocket at halftime. But, I mean, even they would have, I think, been surprised how easy it proved for them to get that, that first score that they needed. And then when they got Henshaw over as well, that was another one, another of those sort of awful look away now moments like Dave Carney's try. When they'd done everything they had, Ulster, to keep them out through, you know, the, uh, you know, the bish bash up front, kind of driving over close in, forcing Leinster to, to, to give it width with nothing really on. And the next minute, bang, Robbie Henshaw breaks two tackles and scores. It's game over. So... You know, it, it, it is really, I, I can't help coming. I've seen them play there so many times. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems that no matter what they do, they find, they somehow find a way to lose the game, albeit sometimes Leinster have been infinitely better than them on most occasions. But I didn't feel that Leinster were that much better than them on this occasion. Okay. But Ulster basically shot themselves in the foot through their own indiscipline and own inability to to function at key moments. Mm-hmm. I think like the disappointing thing from Ulster's point of view is going to be the fact that this isn't you know this wasn't isolated, you know, this idea of coming out after half time and not looking like you're fully fully switched on. Like for a good team, this is a pretty sort of strange um habit that they're developing of just really poor third quarters like mm. you know if you take the even just take the two second halves the last two weeks that's three points but it's part of a wider trend like the dragons game jumps out at me the uh edinburgh game jumps out at me and in an awful lot of instances especially when you're wrapping up bonus points before halftime this doesn't matter and they haven't been punished for it but even arguably if you want to see you know you can say that they lost the game in the third quarter but even arguably, if you want to say that it was the third quarter that really set Leinster on the way to a bonus point that they didn't look like they were going to get, mm-hmm. you know, that point is massive. The point that they didn't get from a, 
a lackluster third quarter against Munster the week before is massive because that's the difference between essentially having to win all your games with bonus points, which is highly doable, aside from that Leinster game. But it's the difference between now having to, in all likelihood, get four tries and deny Leinster a bonus point in that game. So that's that changes the entire complexion of the season. And it's just, I think it's the needless errors are the big ones because, you know, obviously we all, we all love... We all love Mike Lowry. We've talked about how his play at fullback belies his lack of experience in the position this year. But then, you know, it's even just giving away that penalty when he probably should have kicked the ball and he'll know himself. And if he didn't, then um, Dan certainly told him because he mentioned it in the in the post-match interview. And it's just little moments like that that are turning the tide after half time for them. Mm-hmm. And that... I suppose inability to be there's always going to be peaks and troughs, but that inability to be consistent over the 80 minutes is a big thing. And it looms largest against good teams because good teams seize the advantage. Like you asked about, you know, is it a thing with Leinster? And it's not even necessarily a thing with Leinster. I get the sense, I get the sense that it's a thing that's just, it's in the big games against the best teams because with the exception of that Edinburgh semi-final, that's the next step that Ulster need to take to be able to beat the very best teams away from home. Now, obviously, it's the most difficult thing to do in rugby. It's the most difficult fixtures that you're going to have, naturally. But if you look, you know, we're talking about the Dan McFarland project as a sort of overreaching three to five year plan, if you like. And we've said that they're on that right trajectory. But this next step is the most difficult part of that trajectory mm-hmm. because, you know, you use the example of Munster, for example. Munster have been in the position that Ulster are in now for a very long time without being able to win a trophy because they fall down in those biggest of matches when, you know, they're facing semifinals and finals against your Leinsters, against your Saracens. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone proper proper football pundit there by pluralizing <laughs> pluralizing things that didn't need to be pluralized so but you know what i mean like the gap between or bridging the gap between a mid-table team and a team that's in the semi-finals is half the challenge than it is to bridge the gap between teams that are in the semi-finals to the teams that are winning trophies and it's things it's things like that it's making those unnecessary errors where teams like leinster sense the blood in the water and then all of a sudden from a game that you're winning it's five nothing in terms of match points and your season or what you need out of the rest of your season has changed to a massive, massive degree. Like it's really hard to overstate how important it or how big a difference it is from needing to just beat Leinster to needing to beat Leinster without them getting a bonus point and you scoring four tries. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why it can probably seem like you're nitpicking a wee bit to point out like the specific like small moments that but those are those are that's the key. And and yeah, absolutely. And like it seems like you're nitpicking when you talk about it in games that you know they're scoring seven tries in. Yeah. But it's when these things are then transferred to and it's something we talked about loads, you know, was the fact that they weren't getting punished for these kind of things in the earlier games going to loom large whenever they face teams that were just of a higher standard and like you know it still baffles me that they lost that Gloucester game you can Mm -hmm. argue the point of whether Gloucester are really in that band of teams given that they're bottom of the premiership but Mm -hmm. realistically Ulster have had a 10 game 
league winning streak, but they've lost the three most difficult games. Yeah. So it's like, I know it's something that like Darren Cave and Ferris were talking about in the broadcast a few weeks ago. Like it is hard to get a real accurate gauge of where Ulster are at the minute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, here's a little bit then from what Dan McFarland had to say after he, as Michael said earlier, he was uh, some sort of mix of uh, disappointment and anger. So uh, here's his assessment of, of just what happened at the RDS. Yeah, look, re- re- really disappointed. Um, but uh, you know, we came down here with uh, a side that uh, we thought we would uh, put in a, a, a really good performance. And uh, for a lot of that game, we, or for the, certainly for the first half, we did. And then, um, you know, against against the Leinster team, that was uh, more or less fully loaded, very strong. And at half time, we were you know, we put ourselves into good position with some smart play and some some, some strong play and some physical play. And then at the start of the second half, we made two errors, giving a penalty away needlessly in our third of the pitch, which they scored off. And then knocking on when we had a chance in. Uh, um, in their half of the pitch and a chance to get some possession in their half of the pitch and that ended in a, a period of pressure and a try and then that was that was really the flipping of the game we were always on the back foot from there you know, there was a, a huge amount of effort that was put into that both in terms of the preparation and in terms of just just the physical effort and, and mental intensity that went ultimately if you, you're not closer to every free football uh, here in Leinster you, you know they're going to make you pay and they did so, Michael, we spoke an awful lot about Ethan McElroy last week, and this was obviously such a big test for him being start, started down at the RDS against Leinster. How did he come through that for you, and what have you you made of him in the last the last few games? Yeah, I think he came through that. I think he came through it very well. He's looking strong in the air. He's looking decent, you know, a, a decent defender, and we know he's got plenty of pace and an ability to evade tackles. So, you know, when we talk about the Dan McFarland project, I mean, he would appear to be uh, someone very much at the forefront of that at the moment and someone who's actually found himself now in a position where he's, you know, he's, he's, he's got essentially a starting spot, which he thoroughly deserves. I think he's, um, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> looks like he's got a really great future if he can stay fit and keep the kind of form that he's brought so far. You know, sometimes when people start off, you know, at that point, they don't have any fear. The fear comes later. Uh, and therefore, you know, they're, they're not thinking about making mistakes. They're not worrying about it. But this maybe kind of creeps up on you after a while, once you've had your feet under the, the table for a bit. Um, certainly, if he can continue to play with this, this type of, of confidence... Dan, Dan McFarlane clearly trusts him and is clearly right to trust him and with the likes of him and, and, and Mikey Lowry and, and James Hume and then you've got people like Stuart Moore coming through as well it, you know they, they, they do if, if, they, if they can get these guys and use these guys you know their attacking skills they, they can really um, I think feel pretty optimistic about where they might go um, with this in the future but they've got to get them, work them into positions where they, they can use them like that. And it's not purely maybe a, a defensive thing or kick chase only. But we'll see. And with Robert Balakun still to come back as well. And with Jacob Stockdale, suddenly you've got almost too many players in that area. <laughs> you really have. But it's a, it's a nice problem to have yeah. rather than the, the, the other way around. Yeah. So... Um, I, I mean, I'm sure Johnny would probably concur. I've been really impressed with what McElroy 
um, has done. Yeah, like I thought he was. Um, I thought he was very good. He was probably Ulster's. I thought him and Hume were probably the pick of Ulster's backs. Um, I thought Larry actually, aside from that penalty that we talked about, was very good as well. But um, yeah, I was advocating starting Fadas ahead of him on last week's pod. So um, what do I know? <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up. You also poo-pooed my idea that Sam Carter was a, st- a cert to start, but there we go. That's fine. I wasn't going to mention it. I wasn't going. No, to- I said Carter. I I thought Carter should start with Treadwell. Which, oh, um, oh yeah, okay. It was Alan O'Connor. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Alan O'Connor was good as well. So, but Treadwell did make a big impact when he came off the bench. So, well, then. yeah. I'm not taking a full only- loss on that one, like I am with the fat <laughs> <fight, so. laughs> It's actually something worth pointing out as well. It's some of the more established players. We talk a lot about the young players coming through, how they've also improved their games. Mm. And Alan O'Connor is one. You know, his, his skill set, his passing, that, that's something they, the forwards have all worked on with Dan Soper. But I think Alan O'Connor is having a really good season and mm. is, 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 has brought a different dimension to his game. And another person I think we didn't mention, which maybe we should, is Andy Warwick, a player <laughs> who's hard to get any game time at all, <laughs> was thrown in there and was up against uh, Andrew Porter, no less, and survived, not only survived the experience, but Ulster's scrum was solid. Um, the same, if you like, for Tom O'Toole against Keen Healy, because O'Toole played most of the game and Marty Moore went off. And but these guys are also, um, you know, they're, they're pushing on. They're not just sort of treading water here. I mean, I, I really did think Andy Warwick would struggle. I think we all did, and maybe Andy Warwick thought he might as well. <laughs> But he did remarkably well, just as he uh, also did when brought on at the sports ground against against Connacht. Mm-hmm. So it's also he's like he's a player that we probably haven't talked about a lot. But um, like for somebody that we didn't think was necessarily going to be here this season, you know, he's come in like that sort of like American movie stereotype of somebody hauled back in for just one last job, and um, <laughs> like he saved the day against Connacht, really, <laughs> like the way that scrum was going, and then. He definitely I think did, whenever yeah. anybody saw the teams, you know, that was where there was a big sort of disparity in terms of, say, frontline European and international experience. Anyway, Andy Porter going up against Andy Warwick, but mm. you didn't notice. And that's like a testament to, you know, the scrum wasn't part of the game. And that's a testament to how well those guys up front did. It's just, um, and even like, you know, in the back row, I think Jordy's sort of, um, been reborn a wee bit the past um, three or four yeah. weeks as well, haven't been sort of out of the side, out of favour, I think it's fair to say, for parts of this season. Um, he's come back in over the sort of Christmas period as well, but I suppose, yeah, it was like you didn't see enough, I suppose, from guys like Marcel. Um, Carter wasn't as good as he had been before. Um, those European games wasn't Billy Burns' best game. Um, haven't been very good the week before, so like there were there were individual performances that you can pick out, but um, probably just didn't get enough from those real real frontline players, I guess. Well, it all sets it up as we've said then for a massive game whenever Leinster do come up to Belfast. Fingers crossed between now and then. Some of the other teams will have done Ulster a bit of a favour, and maybe they won't, as it happens, need to need to pick up all five points and deny Leinster any. But look, we'll we'll see what we see in the. The time in between. What we don't know is what exactly that interim period is going to look like because, of course, the coronavirus pandemic is uh, not letting up, to say the least. So 
there's no Champions Cup games as we know this weekend or next weekend for Ulster. But what what way does that leave the Champions Cup? Do we have any indication as yet as to what is going to become of the the European tournaments? Probably the Challenge Cup more relevant to Ulster at this stage. Yeah, well, whatever way it goes, it's not uh, it's not good for Ulster because the two proposals that we've heard of from the French so far are that they play these last two fixtures, these two rounds of fixtures in April, and then go straight to semi-finals and finals. So that would be for the four weekends that are left, or the top eight go into the top eight in each conference or whatever they're called pool group. Um, going to a last 16 and then there's a one leg at last 16, one leg at quarterfinal and semifinals, finals as originally planned. Mm. Um, so because of that loss to Gloucester, Ulster aren't in the last uh, or aren't in the top eight of their of their side of the draw. So had they got the result over in King's home, the loss to Toulouse may not have mattered. They could have got a wee reprieve through this actually, but as it is, it's not going to make a difference to them because, you yeah. know, and there's no, there's no talk about what might them getting through to any Challenge Cup. Well, everybody, everybody who if if it goes the the route of a last sixteen in the Champions yeah. Cup, then everybody who doesn't make it would fall into the Challenge Cup because they'll still need eight teams. Okay. But um, that would be dependent on dependent on the Challenge Cup adopting the same formula because the Challenge Cup could theoretically opt to go with the teams that they have from what their pool standings are at the minute, but. I suppose it wouldn't make any sense from a it makes sense from a legitimacy of the competition point of view, but it wouldn't make sense from a marketing point of view, because I think it wouldn't be any bad thing for the Challenge Cup to have teams of Ulster's profile and the rest of those Challenge Cup or sorry, Champions Cup dropouts in the uh knockout stages of their competition. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Michael, we have heard a little bit more just while we've been recording about the Pro 14, about what the state of play is over the next few weeks and uh, what that means for Ulster's fixture list. What's been happening? We've got two rearranged games. We've got um, Leinster playing Munster, uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend. And we've got a rearranged game uh, this weekend coming up as well which I think is Glasgow and Edinburgh, which is this Saturday. So those rearranged games have been decided. Um, Ulster won't play again, we don't believe, until I think it's, what's February the 20th, quite possibly? Yeah, 19th, 20th. 19th, when they play, we think it's Glasgow away. Okay. So there's quite a bit of time here. There's a head up and uh, bans elite sport in Scotland, which uh, there were indications that she might do yesterday. Yeah so, yeah. so at this stage, we're looking at Ulster, our p- next playing on February the 20th at the very earliest, possibly later. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's looking like that, but, you know, um, we don't know. We just don't know what's going yeah. to happen, really. Yeah. Just like the Six Nations, we're not entirely sure what's actually going to happen with that. Though, haven't, funny enough, maybe we will by the time this comes out. I mean, we just <laughs> <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> because that's, that's a bit of a, it seems almost a contradiction from uh, French rugby in that they're saying that their players can't travel to Britain or Ireland or anywhere else to play European club matches, but the French national team can travel to the same countries to go and play Six Nations matches at this stage. That's the lay of the land is the way uh, things are. And the Six Nations is currently planned to go ahead as scheduled beginning in the first weekend in February but we'll see what we see as you say Johnny where does it all leave the Rainbow Cup because the last we had heard was that it was uh, the Pro 14 was going to be played out 
uh, in the structure that we know about. And then there was going to be this Rainbow Cup with the four South African teams coming in. Is there any likelihood of that going ahead? It depends on <laughs> um, level of unabashed optimism. Really? <laughs> like, was there ever any chance of it going ahead? <laughs> like, the thing is, and like, you know, I heard Keith Wood talking on the radio about this um, yesterday. We can talk about all these things going ahead and all these things that are going to happen, but we've no idea. Like, nobody has any idea. Yeah. Like, the fact of the matter is that to talk about anything taking place now is theoretical because it doesn't take very much for a game to be cancelled. As we've seen in this week, it doesn't take very much for a whole competition mm-hmm. to uh, have serious questions um, about how they can complete it. The idea to me, and this is just to me, the idea to me that you're going to have a competition involving South African teams playing against teams from four different unions is fanciful. It seemed fanciful to me in December, but it seems even more so now, in the same way that the idea of Alliance Tour going ahead as planned has always seemed fanciful. But, you know, you'll get people who'll say that the idea of professional sport being played at this time is fanciful, and yet Ulster, which is actually to their detriment in a way, because they're not going to have a game for so long, have managed to get through whatever this is now, five or six months, without any of their games being cancelled, which is amazing to me. But Yeah. Yeah, but as you say, it's now coming at the cost because they'll not be playing until uh, until February twentieth. Well, and and as it as it stands, they'll have no competitive games now before the Six Nations. Ulster, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Ulster certainly won't anyway. Yeah. So. You know. Yeah, well, that's certainly you would think that's to the Ulster players' detriment. Yeah. In terms of Six Nations selection, because that monster Leinster game now couldn't have fallen any better. It's a final trial, isn't it, for Andy Farrell? Like, yeah. It's basically a glorified Ireland final trial now for Andy Farrell because he'll be able to see Munster and Leinster going at each other, presumably uh, fully on. And, you know, uh, unless he, he has other, there are other issues that, that might, might withdraw players from maybe being involved in Ireland issues, player management issues, you can have basically the, an Ireland squad, a large Ireland squad going at each other, which would be an ideal preparation for Farrell to look at form and also to make decisions but what he wants to, to do, I'm not entirely sure when the squad's announced, Johnny, do you? It's meant to be the last week in January, so it'll be the week after that Leinster Monster game. Yeah, yeah, well, so that's perfect. That falls very nicely. Yeah. And those players knocking on the door at Ulster suddenly are at a distinct disadvantage. Mm. Unless yeah. there's a very strong squad named for the Ulster A game that is apparently happening this weekend that Andy Farrell may want to, to take a look at. Who knows? So, well, that's a distinct possibility yeah. because... yeah. There's an off, you know, to use guys like Billy Burns and Stuart McCluskey as examples, they've not played an awful lot. Yeah. You yeah. know, there are guys that were arrested for that Connacht game that then played against Munster and hadn't played an awful lot of rugby in the weeks in between and now aren't going to be playing for the next six weeks. Yeah. So such is the world of uh, the 2021 rugby yeah. season. And, uh, but maybe, we'll- not, maybe not a bit will matter anyway, Gareth, because... You know, maybe there won't be a Six Nations. There won't even be a Six Nations. At, <laughs> at this particular time, but we don't know. Yeah. We don't. No, we just don't know. And what we also don't know is what uh, what becomes of the podcast in the interim period over the next few <clears> weeks. <throat> so uh, we're still working behind the scenes as to what we might do. So we may be back with you next week with some sort of rugby podcast talking about something, but we're not sure. So really at this stage, uh, we're sort of saying we'll see you when we see you. But um, it's been lovely so far this season and we will be back uh, before too long so don't forget about us but for now from Michael 
Sadler. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Hopefully speak soon. From Jonathan Bradley. Cheers. Thank you very much. He has checked out and is currently texting on his phone. He's just emotionally divorced the podcast already. It's work-related text, if that's any. <laughs> we'll allow it. We'll just about allow it. For me, it's not I- like I'm just like putting in an or- a food order. <laughs> No, it's the next. It's the next uh, dog walk he's planning. He's got it all on his phone. <laughs> yeah, you see, this is it. look at us. We're we're rambling to a conclusion already. People are saying we're, they're glad there's nothing happening for the next few weeks. I'm calling time in this, boys. For me, guys, thanks for listening.